Welcome to Mintcast, episode number 148. You know, I think I say that same the same way every single week. i got to come up with some different line here. Anyway, we're recording live deep in the heart of Texas. As it was where I'm sitting on February the 11th in the year of our Lord, 2013. This is Rob, and with me on the podcast this week is my good buddy, Scott. So, since I started... Uh, this is a tremendous tactical advantage to actually be the one who says welcome because that means that I get to ask Scott what he's been doing all week and I've got time to think about, now what have I been doing all week? So Scott, what have you been doing all week? Let me think about that for a minute here. Nope, sorry, you don't get that advantage. That's, that's oh. you got to have that ready to go, man. This is professional organization here. Professional radio, professional podcasting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. So, well, so let's us. see out. Outside of panicking about a half an hour ago because we had uh, we had failed to pay our bills and yeah, um, well there is that yes and the live stream was was not live it was uh, it was dead at that point in time uh, besides that let's see um, had a little fun this weekend I um, I don't know about three years ago when I redid my basement I wired up one corner uh, as a spot to put a TV. And I ran some Ethernet, some Cat5e over to that spot and looped it up through the ceiling back down to what could be loosely termed as my wiring closet. <laughs> it's a closet where there's lots of wires. It's a closet really... full of wires, yes. Okay, yes, I know exactly. exactly what you mean. Yep. And so I never punched it down at the TV side. But the thought was, um, you know, I'd eventually stream something, you know, some box, a Roku or something like that. I'd have something over there. And... Um, so I finally decided that I was going to get off my duff this weekend, and I was going to punch it down. So I got a, went down to the store, got a keystone block for it, and um, borrowed some tools from a guy at work, and looked up the B specification for Ethernet wiring for Cat5e, and yeah. punched, punched down the block, and turned around and walked over to the, uh, the, where my switch is, and plugged it in, and no link. I was going to say, I was, I was waiting for you to say, I plugged it in, and it just worked. It was a miracle. No, no. no. And this was right after I had um, replaced the window switch in my car. I think we talked about this last week. Yeah, yeah. I, so on Saturday, I also replaced the window switch in my car, put everything back together, and it didn't work. So uh, I come to find out, well, Volvo's in their infinite wisdom. There's some software in there, and the only people who can program it are people who have the proper computer equipment that uh, they buy course. subscriptions to, to uh, Volvo stuff for. Uh, and yeah, you don't want to have just so, anybody fixing this stuff. Yeah, and there may not be even a dealership. There may not be a, a repair shop in this area that can do it. I may have to go down to Missoula to make that happen, but um, which is 110 miles away or so. Well, that's which, what you get for owning one of them fern cars. Fern cars, yep, that's yeah. what I get. So anyway, so it was not, it was like um, failure Saturday at that point. <laughs> And I tried all sorts of stuff. I was mucking around with it for a while, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I nicked the wire when I was putting up the insulation, or, you know, when the guys put the drywall up, maybe somebody, maybe they ran a screw, you know, they missed the the uh, two by four, and they ran a screw into the uh, into the the Ethernet um, cable yeah. up in the ceiling, and finally, I was just like, you know what? Because I had terminated the the server the switch side end with an RJ45 three years ago and yeah. I could see the wires and it looked good. You know, it lo looked as standard, but eventually I was like, eh. I, I had about six feet of slack on that side. So I'm like, I can 
you know, I can spare six yeah. inches of cutting this. So I just cut the, um, the RJ45 off and I had some ends and such and the crimping tool and everything and redid it. But this was literally like 45 minutes later. And after going upstairs for a while and, you know, sort of moping around and yeah. uh, cut the end off, redid the, um, the wiring uh, and uh, crimped it and plugged it in and boom, link. So <sighs> it was the other end. Yeah, it was the end that I terminated a few years ago. And um, I don't know if, if people have done uh, used Cat 6 RJ45s, they, they've changed it so that when you push the wires in, they're actually open at the, the far end. It doesn't, um, if you've ever done cabling, uh, old Cat 5E RJ45s, which are the jack that you yeah. plug into the wall. Yeah. Uh, when you put your wires in, you had to have your wires cut and have them perfectly even, and then you would push them in. You'd have to get them lined up in the proper specification, you know, right. orange, white, orange, green, blue, you know, da-da-da, whatever right, it was. Whatever that is. You, look you shove them in as far as you can. You try and get them all butted up against the front of that yeah. that RJ45, yeah. and then, then, and then you try, then you crimp it. Yeah. Well, now with the Cat 6 ones, you, you you can actually pull them through. You don't butt them up against that. That front of the RJ45 jack is open, oh. so so it makes it a lot easier. In fact, one of the guys, one of the network guys at work said, just pull them through one at a time, so that you can guarantee that you've got your wiring. You know, you've got them in the right order, and you know you just cut them so there's like six inches of wire hanging out, and you pull them right through that that jack, and then the crimper has a razor on hmm. the far edge of it and it the, cuts them for you cuts the end up oh that's yeah. handy yeah so it yeah. was it was a lot easier to do and it, it worked out and it was kind of fun i haven't i haven't done any wiring in like forever I oh, know, yeah. probably six seven eight years ago i did a fair amount of it for work and yep. um, would rebuild server racks and junk like that and just don't do it anymore and so it was oh, yeah. it was and i was really relieved that it actually worked because uh <laughs> i still haven't fixed the car but i've got but the, you got the wiring working Got the wiring working, so. Yeah, we moved into this house. I think I've told this story before, but when we moved into this house about oh, 12 years ago now, um, it was quite progressive, and they had they wired every room in the house with Cat5 cable. And the, office, the rooms that I said were going to be offices, we have two of them, they put a double Cat5 drop in. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be great, so I can just walk around any of these. And I got a patch panel in the the closet that you know is set up to to plug in for uh all the phones um and so i plug we were using it for a while and then i got a computer and so i walked over and just plug i thought well i can just plug it into one of these cat five jacks right so you plug it in nothing so oh. i thought okay so i pulled it all apart well the guy what they had done is they had and they're these dual jacks right that work for either um, a phone connection or an Ethernet connection. Yep. They had only wired the phones. Ugh. Oh, I was so frustrated. So then I had to go in and figure out um, what you had to do in order to get the wiring set up in the jack properly so that it would work with a regular Ethernet port. And then, and it's it's some kind of screwy telephone thing. I don't know how they do it, but you can plug either a phone or a um, uh, like an RJ45 plug into it, into a regular Ethernet plug into it. So, so I went That's around the whole house and wired them all. So, yeah. yeah, I only have a few. I, you know, they only wired up four jacks in this house. Two of them are in the upstairs 
what what are the secondary bedrooms upstairs it's yeah. there's two small bedrooms and then the master which isn't very big either but um there's no jacks in there there's one here one in my daughter's room and then there's two downstairs and i i wired in a, an additional one when i put um when i built out the basement because yeah. i could still get up you know and patched up through the floor to where my tv sits upstairs or you know in the downstairs tv room anyways yep. but cool. uh, yeah so i mean you really got to have uh, those now this is turning into the uh the network hardware podcast. The network hardware here. show, yeah. From, yeah. Instead of the, uh, the the Linux Mint themed podcast that we get uh, we get beat on. If I could come up with a better transition towards something about uh, well, another thing that works on the Ethernet is Linux Mint. No, that's just really bad. We're not even going to struggling, go struggling, struggling. So uh, let's see. What have I been up to this week? Uh, a pretty quiet week, Linux-wise. Actually, haven't done a whole lot. Did uh, some research for for the show, but uh, not really an enormous amount. Uh, it's been a pretty quiet week. So busy at work. Lots of. Uh, I got one of these. Um, um, I was going to say toxic, but that's the wrong word. The, you know the kind of project that's like a tarball that you don't want to touch it because it's gonna, you know it's going to hurt and you know you're never going to be able to get it off your fingers afterwards. So I got picked up one of those this week. So I got kind of started in on that, and, then, and that's kind of consuming uh, a fair number of cycles. So not much going on at home. I did buy a computer, and it's on the way. So What did you buy? Well, it's going to be it's an HP um it's a Core i7 with a, uh, I think it's got an NVIDIA card in it, uh, 630 or something. It's not a real, uh, not a real top line card, but uh, it's primarily going to be a gaming machine. And that's going to let me repurpose what is now my main uh, dual boot machine uh, into a mint only notebook. So that's what uh, he's going to get converted. He's going to get his Windows uh, side finally removed. So I won't have to dual boot the thing anymore, which will be nice because then I'll go from um, 100 gigs or so on my Linux partition to the full drive. I'll get a bunch of extra space. So it's going to be nice to have a little more room to uh, to maneuver around Nice. and not have to dual boot. And then I'll probably, uh, after I get the the new HP burned in, it comes with a a Quadratera super bait. I don't know how big a hard drive on it, but more than normal people would ever use so it'll be lots of space to either dual boot it or i've got several terabyte drives laying around that i may just stick in and so we may get some linux goodness going on on that too because i want to one of the things i was looking for was a box that would that i could fire up on linux and run steam on as Mm -hmm. a way to see kind of how that all worked and you know if and see if i can get this uh, mmo that i play running under linux because if i can do that I might just leave that guy on on the Linux side all the time, not run Windows on it. Uh, the other reason I bought it now was it's coming with Windows Seven. I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah, and so it's getting really tough to find a box that you can buy um, that doesn't have Windows Eight on it. So, and I really didn't want to start with Windows Eight, so I wanted to start with Windows Seven. So that's that's going to be good anyway. At least I don't have to uh, cross that bridge yet, and maybe never actually. I may just say pass on windows 8 i actually got um tabbed to be one of the evaluators of our recently purchased um samsung windows 8 pro tablet oh 
So they bought this tablet at work. It's yeah. got Windows Windows 8 Pro. It's not the RT version on it. $1,100. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and and it isn't because we tablet, bought it. Not the company. Yeah, they bought it from Newegg, too. So it's not like oh, they got gosh. jerked on the price. It's just $1,100. $1,100. But then I read, I saw the headline the other day that said that uh, Microsoft sold out of their their professional tablets in a day. So well, that's odd because they haven't been selling the other ones. Yeah, they can't get rid of the RTs. Nobody wants them. Yeah. So, but yeah, okay. interesting stuff. So anyways, I won't be able to, the point being, I won't be able to avoid Windows 8 entirely. Windows 8 entirely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we are this week, I mentioned getting ready for uh, doing some research, and, and I, some of that was dredging up old memories, and some of it was learning some new stuff. But we're going to be talking about uh, open source databases. And I, I know that people are just just frothing at the mouth, wishing that we would just talk about databases. That They've been wanting us to do this for years now, I'm sure. Absolutely certain. It's such a fascinating topic. But we're going to be talking about, uh, that was all sarcastic in case uh, it wasn't clear. But uh, we're going to be talking about uh, databases. So, uh, And there's actually some interesting stuff in here. You might uh, have encountered more of this than you know. But for right now, Let's have a look at some of the week's news, shall we? So we're going to start off with some uh, Eufy news, uh, and that would be the uh, UEFI Secure Boot System. So this week, uh, the Linux Foundation finally... Uh, has released its UEFI secure boot system. Uh, and if uh, just to, to rewind for a minute here and remind everybody, UEFI is the secure boot system that uh, Windows and a bunch of the hardware manufacturers have gotten together and, and put together that, in, that promises a more secure um, environment to work in. Uh, what it does, though, and what it had threatened to do was to lock out installing any operating system that wasn't signed basically by um, Microsoft. So uh, this created a, quite a kerfuffle early on in the uh, the rollout of this stuff. And um, it seemed to me at the time, and it's easy to look back and claim that you, you knew this coming, and, and of course I didn't, but it seemed to me at the time that some clever guy would figure out something and it wasn't the end of the world. And it turns out, some clever guy has figured it out. Um, so the Linux Foundation, and there's actually a couple of these um, solutions now, announced that their secure boot plan involved writing a pre-boot loader signed by a Microsoft key and would then chain load any normal operating system bootloader without requiring signature checks. And so that makes it easier for the little Linux distributions um, to go and get a... Uh, a key, or so they don't have to go get a Microsoft key was the problem. So um, they had thought they were going to have this last year, but ran into some troubles with uh, getting the key from Microsoft. First they get the key, but it was the wrong one, and then um, it just there was just a big mess. Well, turn they they finally sorted out that okay, they're they figured out how to or they got it all sorted out, and they're coming out with this. Um, so it's been released to the public. There's a validated uh, pre, preloader.efi and, and hashtool.efi files. Um, and he made a little um, 
mini USB image that's bootable just shows you how the, the whole thing works. So you can get all this off the uh, Linux Foundation secure boot system uh, or, or off their, the, off James uh, Bottomley's blog rather, uh, who's the guy that uh, is putting this out. So that was the first little bit of uh, UEFI news. That was uh, from back in 8th of February. And then just uh, a day or two ago, a couple of days later, I guess, I guess um, Stephen J. Von Nichols on ZDNet pops out this this um, posting that says Linux developers are working on uniting the secure boot fixes. And so um, this, uh, which this is just terrific news, as far as I'm concerned. This is this is great. Um, so. Uh, of course, there wasn't an easy way to boot things, and so there were two systems that came out. The Linux Foundation one that we just talked about that just came out, and then Matthew Garrett had a shim system that w- that had, he had put together to boot Linux on these PCs. And so Garrett has decided that what should happen is that we ought to merge these two things together. So he's working on integrating the Linux Foundation's uh, UI and security code into the shim with the end of, the aim of producing one loader. And the reason he's doing that is because the one that the Linux Foundation put together was actually a lot easier to use. Uh, it had a better UI and better, uh, it was more secure. And so uh, in the, the article, Von Nichols uh, says, within the next few months, booting and installing Linux on Intel-based Windows 8 PCs will once more be a matter as simple as putting a Linux CD or a USB stick in a PC and rebooting the system. And and that's what I thought might happen way back all low these many months ago when this first came up. And of course, not being the techie guy, I had no idea how they were going to do that. But it just seemed like some clever guy was going to figure out how to do it. So what am I missing here, Scott? Is this just the end of this issue? It just it's going to go away, right? Well, I don't know if it's the end yet. I mean, there's a few more hurdles to cross. It seems like they have a a path that's going to get us to where it it really is a non-issue. But I mean, you, you guys have probably seen the stories about Samsung uh, laptops that are getting bricked They're right getting now. Getting bricked, yeah. If you boot yeah. anything but Windows 8 on it, it bricks it. That's interesting. Yeah, so even Windows will brick it. So yeah. that just came out uh, the last day or two that Windows. It wasn't just Linux that was bricking Samsung devices, and it's being said this is a real issue. Um, you know, Matthew Garrett, I think, is waiting on that one, and uh, so so there's still stuff out there, and you know, I don't know. If, you know, Google is working on what's called Core Boot, which is sort of a, a competing standard or competing uh, technology to UEFI BIOS. So, okay. I mean, is is that the answer or, you know, will this, you know, I think I remember, and I'll you know, give you credit for this. You, you had said, you know, maybe this is going to end up being a tempest in a teapot. You really felt like, you know, people were getting really excited about this six months ago. And, it was um, the end of Linux. For it was for the end of time. Yeah, the end of days. Says, yeah. End of yeah. days was right there, and and uh, and you you were this, the lone voice of reason was uh, <laughs> Rob Hawkins of Mincast, you <laughs> know, you saying go. that, yeah, that was maybe good, yeah. maybe this will you know this will probably blow over, and you know, two years, a year from now, we'll all be like, ah, remember when we all got excited about that? I don't know if we're there yet, but it feels like we're getting closer, and I I don't think. 
it's you know it was, where we are right now it just feels really like it's going to be a non-issue and then as being somebody who you know we talked about this before this new motherboard that i have is a uefi motherboard it was trivial for me to to make that that in fact it was off it. by it was off by default uh in on my machine oh. uh, granted this machine this motherboard didn't come with windows 8 pre-installed on it so uh, um, yeah. You know, there's there's part of the difference, and I'm a I'm a enthusiast and a hobbyist, so I know exactly what to do. It's you know the question really is for you know somebody like your mom or or you know computers that we run into three years down the road when people are complaining about you know I can't stand this Windows nine interface and yep. can you do something for me here and, and it's you like, always nope, to, you'll yeah. have to buy I'll have to build you a whole computer to do that yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're, I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable with, with what's going on, and I think they've got a path, and I think it's, it is going to be resolved, and, the, you know, the smart, like you said, the smart people are working on it, which is, you know, that's what I do for work. I just try and put the smart people to work on the problems, on the, and then I, on the then hard I go problems home and, and yep. then get back out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was uh, uh, Von Nichols also put a a uh, Google Plus post out uh, that got has got attracted quite a bit of attention uh and so of course i had to i couldn't resist shooting my mouth off um and saying well you know and and i really do still think this that you know you look at what you go buy now you go buy a tablet you go buy um well any apple device and what microsoft is trying to do is they're trying to sell you a hardware software combo where they're all kind of just locked together and you buy a device and it does a certain thing and that's what it does. And if you don't like that, then don't buy the device. Um, and um, they, uh, the, I'm looking, I'm, I'm stumbling here because I'm looking for who was it that, um, there was somebody came back in anyway and posted that that's not actually right. It's not the hardware vendor, the PC vendors. Um, it's the BIOS manufacturers that are the issue. That's who caved and just agreed to create this BIOS lock to to uh, Microsoft. And it's it's really those guys that have <clears throat> cut a deal or something. There's that's where the things got uh came off the the rails was, was with the BIOS manufacturers, wasn't really the, the PC companies at all. So interesting how we got into this mess anyway. But lots of discussion around. Yeah, so our next story is actually um a little more happy. This is good news now, right? <laughs> it's good news, exactly. Oh, yeah. Good. So, so word has come out. Valve has actually uh, mm-hmm. done some work to clarify their license for Steam, uh, and it's taken away some of the confusion that was out there, where um, there was concern, some concern as to whether Steam could be repackaged in Linux distributions. And uh, wouldn't you know it? It was the uh, Arch developers who actually first raised the question. Uh, as to whether the binary blobs that uh, that reside um, that, that actually make up the the Valve uh, Steam Linux client, if though there was questions as to whether again whether those could be redistributed, and like I say, Valve has actually done some some work to clarify their license, and they've said that yes, you can go ahead and do that. Um, Valve is they're they're continuing to focus on Ubuntu and saying that's their primary platform. But um, they've also uh, got a binary out for uh, Debian, and you know the Arch guys will do their own thing. They'll they'll go ahead and repackage that um, so they can can put it on their platform. 
And so, uh, again, they, like I say, they've clarified their license, and now you're going to start to see it, which is great. It's, it's going to start um, showing up in a bunch of other places. And, you know, kudos to the Arch guys for, uh, you know, being at the forefront of that that effort. You know, as a Mint users and being, you know, in the – if you're a st- standard Mint user, not LMDE, you're, you're already home safe. You can do it. Um, I've got it running on my box here, which is running Mint 14. And it works great. I've played a few games as you guys, as we've talked about in, in previous episodes. But uh, um, those of you on other distributions, um, you should start seeing it pop up. And there's a number of different people who've got it running on on all sorts of distributions. So we should see it all over the place and start seeing it in the repos for for other distributions as well. Yeah, that that's when it's really, I think, going to take off because you know if you're on Ubuntu, then you're all set. But if you're anywhere else, it it really is. Um, fairly challenging it can be done and and i know last week i said oh you can't do it but it can be done but it it's really uh it takes a little bit of uh of finagling to make it happen so once they get it so that everybody can just stick it in the repo and move forward then i think it, it'll start to take off more in the linux community i think you're right yeah and our last story you guys might have heard this this is coming out of the rumor mill uh, there was actually a rumor that came out of FOSDEM, which is going on right now, which is the Free and Open Source Developers European Meeting. Uh, it's going on right now somewhere across the pond. And uh, there was a rumor that came out of there that Microsoft was interested in and considering a native port of their Office uh, suite. So, you know, again, this is just a rumor. And it's from an unnamed source, so the person isn't really willing to come forward. But uh, supposedly they are uh, looking at, at doing this port and looking at also putting it on ARM devices. Uh, and so, you you know, potentially have mobile versions for both Android and iOS. But again, they'd have a, a native version for um, for Linux, not, not uh, running through Wine, but actually natively ported there. So and that, that can't be that hard to do because it sits on. They've got it on on uh, OS ten. Yeah, you, well, it's Office for Mac, so yeah. yeah so, it's a, so you would think that that port from OS ten to Linux would be yeah, easier anyway. Yeah, and those and the production the the release cycle of Office for Mac is not the same as their standard release cycle. So I would I was always under the impression that there were different teams inside of um, Microsoft that were actually producing those. And Office for Mac is a little, it's a little funky compared to, um, you know, the PC version. It's not quite the same. So, so I don't, what about the web app versions? Have you tr- worked with those at all? Office 365, not at all, no. Well, so um, I, w- I was listening to something uh, on the way home uh, tonight on a podcast. I think it was on... Uh, uh, Tech News Today, maybe they were talking about these web apps and and was this going to kind of put Google Drive under and and or the, all that competition? And um, so I thought, gee, I don't know even know if those things work on Linux. Like, why would you bother to port your um, port the whole Office suite over when you could just say to people, and this is what they want you to do anyway. This Office three sixty five. Just go load it up on your SkyDrive and and off you go. And so I thought, well, I, I'll have to give it a try. So I come home and fired it up and logged into my SkyDrive account. And lo and behold, if I can't, I, you know, I'm running Microsoft Word web app 
it looks an awful lot like Word 2013 or or the 2010, I guess, is the one that we've got uh, at work now. It looks it's got the same ribbon interface. Looks like it works fine. So. It w- I wouldn't be surprised if you find out that it doesn't have full functionality unless it runs under Internet Explorer, that it's not perfectly written to open standards or, or you know, um, what is it, um, perfectly compliant with standards. So as long as, oh, um, you mean like uh, browser standards? Brand, browser standards, what, a W3C or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't. Yeah, I don't know. I've got it up in Chrome right now and, and just looking at it, and it it seems to be a fair amount like what I would have expected to see, um, you know, in in a regular... No, it's not the full word, obviously, but it's a, a... What I'm wondering is whether this is a competitor to Google Docs. Well, that's what their positioning is. Yeah. Now, we, be, now, we better be careful because... Um, you know, we're we're talking a lot about Microsoft here. Oh, that's so, true. Yeah, we should probably know. stop. And, yeah, there. And you're actually running a Microsoft product as we as we podcast. So this yeah, is. Yeah, I'm wondering is, if we should do our show notes in in Word web app. And in, in, well, never mind. No, no, no. Well, I'm, here, here's here's the difference here, guys. If I'm not mistaken, to to use the Word web app, you need an account. Yes. And and I think those are ten dollars a month per person or something along those lines. Uh, Might be a hundred a hundred dollars a year for family, something like that is what they're what they're and so I can So my grandfather didn't somehow then? Uh not because you're paying them any yeah. money. I don't know I don't know how this you're is, doing it. Maybe through SkyDrive or something. This but, is just SkyDrive with a hotmail account that I've had. Yeah, for maybe it's something in there. Years. Yeah. I'm sticking with Google Docs. So the other interesting question is whether this is gonna Kind of well, the the whole sort of thought that Microsoft's going to re- release Office for for Linux, and these these web apps are are working. Is this going to spur Google Docs on to improve some of the eh, admittedly somewhat clunkiness in the the Google Doc editor? I think they're going to have to in order to compete with um, with Office three sixty five because it's. I mean, now you've got two two major players in the market. And yep. you know, love them or hate them, Microsoft's a big player, and they're gonna they're gonna push them. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, competition is a good thing. Is a good thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so. Hmm. interesting. Yeah. So that's gonna do it, I guess, for the news. Uh, kind of a light news week this week, and uh, I'm gonna let uh, Scott kind of take us into our uh, main discussion that we're gonna look at database um database I. Hmm. All right, so you can't talk about open source databases without starting sort of at the bottom. And that would be um, LibreOffice Base. So LibreOffice Base is part of the LibreOffice suite of uh, Office tools and would be akin to uh, Microsoft Access. It's a. It's not really a database. It's. It can be. It can create self-contained databases, embedded databases, is what they call it, or it can just be a front end to other data, databases that you connect to, and those can be uh, all sorts of things. We'll talk just real quick about that. But um, before we talk about about base itself, let's talk about a little little bit about why you would use a database. And you know, I raise this question because I'm not a developer, 
And yeah, I use databases um, that I connect to all over the place. You guys all know that. I mean, just about anything you touch, you're connecting to a database. But um, as far as creating them myself and leveraging my own, I don't do that very often. And so I wanted to look at this as well and say, okay, why would I use a database, say, versus a spreadsheet? Um, And so a couple of reasons you would want to use a database when you need to have your data stored in an orderly and organized way, um, when you need to be able to search that stored data with with speed and flexibility, when you want to assemble uh, multiple related sets of data into coherent and logical structures, and uh, also when you're dealing primarily with data management versus numeric calculations. Uh, numeric calculations lend themselves very well to spreadsheets, as we're all probably aware, but uh, um, other data can be better uh, accessed and, and uh, leveraged via a database. Um, when you have data that's constantly changing and you frequently need to produce reports based on that data, and then if you also if you have large amounts of data, um, a database is going to be a lot quicker at extracting records that meet uh, multiple search criteria versus a spreadsheet. So those are just some of the reasons why why you would want to do that. Um, you know, I was trying to think in my life, what are some things that I would potentially look at LibreOffice Base to create um, one of these embedded databases for? And you know, I think about um, for me, books. I have a lot of books. I read a lot of books, and uh, a lot of times at the beginning of the year, I'll make a uh, a New Year's resolution to read. I'm going to read at least one book a month or something like this, and then cre- you know, shortly after that. Um, you know, within two or three months, I kind of forget, have I read that book? I start reading again. Oh yeah, I read this one, these types of things, but even just keeping track of the books that I have. People also will create databases for, uh, record collections. They'll do it for household inventory. They'll do it for, um, their own personal sort of address book where they can keep sort of a lot of information. Now, a lot of that's been usurped by stuff that's easily available, uh, on the internet. You can use, you know, there's all sorts of tools now, so you don't necessarily have to do that, but um, base itself lends itself really well to a lot of these type of uh, activities. So a little bit, a little bit about base. Um, base is actually a full-featured database front end, and um, it can it can allow you to, like I say, either create your own databases. It actually uses the HyperSQL uh, database engine, which is a Java, uh, which is written in Java, and you know has this functionality as we were talking about. There's tons of wizards inside a base to help walk people through um, creating databases, but not just databases um, themselves and the actual stores of the data. It can help you to create queries and forms and reports to actually access the data, um, to actually put in more put in more data or to access the data itself. So lots of stuff there beyond just a simple database. Now, um, the you know Rob's going to talk in just a little bit about more complex database engines. But uh, when you use those database engines, he's going to touch on this a little bit, you, you end up having to create these tools yourself um, or use existing tools um, to, to do things like query the data, to um, create forms to input data, to um, create reports to actually access the data and, and uh, report on it. So all these things built into base itself. Uh, it's great for single-user situations. Um, uh, that you can use for it is a full it is a uh, fully functional relational database uh, under the covers there so it can do uh, it can do all sorts of stuff uh, but it can also it, it can also 
besides just single user, you can use it in enterprise situations. It actually, you can, it, there's um, native support drivers for, for base to be a front end to um, MySQL databases, um, uh, Microsoft Access, uh, Post, Postgres, um, and then there's also JDBC and ODBC uh, standard drivers that basically allow you to connect to just about any backend database that you want. Um, you can also connect to flat files and spreadsheets. Uh, so you can use uh, bases, a front end for, for a spreadsheet, particularly one, if you have a massive spreadsheet, you might find that using something like base is easier for data input or actually searching, querying the data and reporting on the data. <clears throat> the other thing about, um, the, one of the last things we'll talk about it, it, it's with regards to base is that because it's integrated with the LibreOffice suite, it actually can integrate well with um, with things like Writer or um, Calc. So you can use it um, with Writer to do stuff like a mail merge uh, and uh, a large mail merge using you know LDAP, or you can even uh, use it uh, with the address book format such as Microsoft Office, um, uh, Microsoft Outlook, or even Mozilla. And then you can also use it with Calc for um, creating linked data ranges and calc files and, and doing data pilot analysis and things like that, or even as, uh, even for, as the basis for charts in, um, in calc files. So, uh, you know, a lot of functionality there, uh, simplistic, um, easy to get started with, and we're going to put some links in the show notes. There is absolutely tons of resources in terms of um, getting information about base and how to use it. Uh, we'll have a link to the official uh, wiki documentation. There's a base user guide that's 52 pages long, so it's pretty detailed. Got a, a, You can get it in PDF format. They also have two advanced guides that they're still working on. They haven't finalized them, so they are available as um, ODT files that you can uh, open in Word or uh, in Writer. Um, they're still uh, editing those, but the, the data in them is great. They're 50-plus pages of advanced topics for base. Uh, there's an FAQ that's got a ton of uh, questions in it. It's not just a simplistic FAQ. We'll have a link to that. And then um, if you were to just uh, go up on YouTube and look for LibreOffice Base videos, there's quite a few. And I'm going to have a link to one gentleman um, who uh, goes by Burst Pipes. And he has put up about 12 or so um Videos are all about 10 to 12 minutes long dealing with different subjects around base, and they're actually very well done. So we'll have a link in the show notes to that. So if base is something you're interested in, there is an absolute ton of information that's out there that's free, that's easily accessible, that can help you get started there. Well, I've been sitting here as you've been uh, been talking, and I have been listening, honest, but uh, I've fired up uh, base just because I don't think uh, I have ever really used it for anything uh, on the uh, at all, uh, I don't haven't had a haven't had a use case for it. So I thought, well, I'll have a look at it because I looked, I've looked briefly at uh, the Microsoft equivalents at work. We had a, a project where we needed something like that, but uh, I haven't used it really very much either. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to just make something. You mentioned uh, book collection, so I thought, okay, I'll go see if I can create some tables for a book collection. It was astoundingly easy to do. You yes. know, there's a wizard on there, and it just said, okay, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll make some categories. Sure, I'll put them in categories. And so I made it to categories table, threw in a few categories. Okay, now there's, an, there's a wizard for authors. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, amazingly easy 
to put together something that would um, organize all your your information uh, in in a pretty easy to get at uh, at f f uh, structure now I don't know how easy it is to build forms and and all that stuff once you got the database designed um, it's probably easier than programming something in uh, PHP or even you know a Python yes. front end and and so Let's talk a little bit about that, and let's have you go ahead and step into some of the more advanced databases uh, that you yep. know have probably have more functionality on the back end and maybe a little less on the front end. Well, yeah, because that's a and that's a good segue into these other ones because um, the other truism is so how am I most likely to encounter a database uh, and I want to use it for something and Base has that stuff all built into it to let you easily kind of get at building yourself a little. Uh, database itself as well as then building the forms that you need and the reports that you need to get data in and out of it. Um, if you on the other hand are wanting to to do more prog program development um, or if you're wanting to um, directly access and work with the data and I would guess that that's less that's fewer people than the programmer people so there's folks that would use just a place to store their Christmas list or their book collection or record collection Base is probably the right answer for that. Then there's the folks like me who uh, see a problem like that and they immediately think Python. Oh, yeah, I could write a Python program that would just keep track of all that and it would have a GUI and be very clever. Those are the folks that are going to be interested in uh, something that's programmatically accessible and perhaps more easily accessible than Base would be because I think there's a programming API for Base as well, but it's not nearly as well developed as these others. So before we, t I, I'm going to talk about uh, some of the very common um, databases that are available from a programming or a heavy-duty database perspective. But and all of those are based around something called SQL, and so is um, base in in a way, although it's all hidden. You don't have to deal with this. So SQL, what is this SQL thing? And you'll hear people talk about MySQL or SQL and SQLite and PostgreSQL. So this, they all have this SQL in there. Well, SQL is a special purpose programming language that was designed for managing data in a relational database management system. Okay, so what's a relational database management system? Well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, lots of interesting uh, stuff floating about on what do the three letters SQL stand for. You'll see some people just state as a as an absolute fact that it stands for structured query language or simple query language or any of other several other things. In fact, it doesn't stand for any of those things. And these days, SQL in fact is not a TLA. Uh, it is not a three-letter acronym. It doesn't really stand for anything was originally developed at IBM by uh, a couple of guys in the early 70s. And the, the original version was called SQL, S-E-Q-U-E-L. And it stood for Structured English Query Language. Um, and it was designed to work on, on this quasi-relational database management system that IBM was developing during the 70s. Um, they, they, they changed the original acronym to SQL because SQL was already trademarked. Uh, so that's kind of the, the history of, of where it came from. So some common ways of getting at, well, so, so 
What's a relational database? Well, um, I am not a database expert, and so you're going to get a a, a Tyro's introduction to relational databases. Um, here's the problem that relational databases are trying to solve. Let's suppose I have a book collection, and one of the things that you know I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive about my books, and so I like to record. Oh, the publishing company and the author. And then as I collect up information about the author, I like to record that in my database as well. So one way to do that is I, I set up a big table. And in my table, I have one row for each book. And the, the book then has a title and it has an author. And it has the author's um, birthday and the author's address and the publisher's name and the publisher's address and the year the book was published and the category and all this stuff is in my table. Well, where that shows up, each of those things is a column in my table. And the whole row is a record in my table. So I enter three or 4,000 books, say, in there. And then I find out, oh, you know this author I've been working with? My golly, I've been entering his birth date wrong all this time. So I've got 60 of his books or so, very prolific author, and I need to go and change his um, birthday. Well, I have it's in my database in 60 places. That's the problem. And so one of the things that relational databases were intended to do was to get rid of this data duplication problem, where the same data is entered in two places. And so the way that they do that is as I build two tables uh, and and I would build more than that, but for this example, I'll build two tables. And in one table, I'll have the book name, and I'll have the author's ID number. And then I'll have an author's table, and in the author's table, I have the author's name and their birth date. So now, if I need, if I discover, oh, gee, I've got the birth date wrong for this author, I change the author's birth date in the author's table, and through the relation between those two tables, or those two tables are related through the author identification number, which is stored in one and it indexes into the record in the author table. That's Then it, it has now changed that information for every book that that author wrote. It only exists in one place. And so that's the problem that relational databases were created to solve, is that you store um, you break things down in the, into what they call third normal form. And so that guarantees that each piece of data is only in there once, that if I change it in one place, it changes it everywhere, that I can't delete something that is referenced. And, and there's a bunch of theoretical database properties that, that come from organizing your data and breaking it down so that you only store things one thing at a time. So as you might imagine, that creates a database structure. It's very difficult to follow, difficult to understand. You've got this stuff spread out all over the place. And so you need a database manager. And so SQL is the language that you use to, um, you say, select all the records from this table where the author ID is equal to such and such. Um, and so that's the language that you use to get at that data. So big, long introduction to uh, the part that I want to talk about, which were the name of the, these, prog or the, these programs that are available. So... Probably the most common, uh, and I'm guessing at that, uh, so don't send me in emails 
decrying the fact that I claimed that this was wrong. But I think the most common on the web that you will find is MySQL. Um, and it has been around a long time. Um, it um, started off being, uh, well, it it was an open source alternative to what was the the thousand pound gorilla uh, of Oracle in the commercial space. And so uh, it started up and and started to get some traction around the internet. And now um, an absolutely enormous number of uh, different programs or and sites that you go to around the web would depend on uh, MySQL or would use MySQL in them. Uh, one of them, for example, is our mintcast.org site. Runs on top of WordPress, which uses um, MySQL to store all of its um, its uh, background data. So all the data about Mintcast, where the files are, um, everything we type in, all that stuff is stored in a MySQL database that WordPress manages. Um, several of these sort of things. It's the um, the claim is it's the world's most popular open open source database. Now the issue with uh, MySQL is that it's uh, the it was acquired by um, I want to say Oracle acquired it directly uh, was part of the was in around the Sun time but I think it was Oracle acquired it directly um, and so people started to get worried about it. well what's going on there uh, and so far there is a, a, a MySQL community edition it's freely downloadable it's available under the GPL. And it's supported by a huge uh, group of open source developers. So it's not, um, you know, there is no immediate cause for concern, uh, if you will. Uh, Oracle, now Oracle doesn't have the best uh, reputation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the open office, libre office debacle. And so um, there is some, I guess, reason for concern. But... The, the Internet is not in any immediate danger of being destroyed because Oracle bought MySQL. Seems to be working along just fine. But people being what they are and open source being what it is, um, along came a, a branch of the MySQL data, relational database management system called MariaDB. So MariaDB was, form, was created by the original creators of MySQL. So the guy that originally started the MySQL project and then got acquired by Oracle um, has gone out and started another branch. And so it's uh, um, the, the worry was around the GPL, where, what, the license status. What was going to happen once MySQL was under Oracle? Um, and so they were very concerned about that. So they have have um, opened this up or, or started this this thing up, and in, the intent is to make uh, is to maintain a very high level of fidelity with MySQL, so, uh, so that you could just take your system that was running on MySQL and you could drop MariaDB in instead, and it would just function exactly the same. Uh, the fork or the branch started almost immediately after the announcement of the acquisition. Uh, by Oracle, um, and uh, the the MySQL developer guy actually had left Sun before the announcement of the acquisition. Um, most of the develop the people who are actively developing MariaDB now um, were actually 
on the MySQL core developers list as well. And a lot of them left um, after the announcement of the acquisition. So um, looks very promising, doesn't exist. Well, let me back up. So it's gradually getting some traction. Um, it's easy to install from Ubuntu. It's in the repos. Uh, near as I can tell, I couldn't find it in the Mint repo, uh, in the LMDE repo, rather. I'm sure it's in the, the Mint main edition repos because that's, that's coming straight out of uh, Ubuntu. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's made it into LMDE yet. Um, the MariaDB hasn't. Um, the other interesting news about MariaDB, of course, is that Fedora 19... Um, has uh, announced that they're going to actually replace MySQL with MariaDB in uh, Fedora 19. Um, so they're, they tend to be sort of more cutting edgy uh, a little bit. But I'm wondering if this is sort of the beginning of the same thing we've seen happen with LibreOffice and OpenOffice, where uh, the the major distros are slowly saying, okay, well, we don't we worry about Oracle, and they're moving away to the the alternative. Um, OpenSUSE just uh, announced that um, I think it's in 12-3 that they're going to replace, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to replace MySQL uh, with MariaDB. And, and I think in both Fedora and OpenSUSE, MariaDB is there. You can install it instead of or in replace, uh, replacing MySQL um, if you choose to. Um, so interesting stuff coming, I, and I wonder. I haven't, haven't heard or read anything. There was there's something posted up on the the Mint uh, forums or the community area uh, suggesting that Mint should replace uh, MySQL with MariaDB as well. Um, didn't look like it was going to. It was getting a lot of traction, but I suppose if Ubuntu ever goes that d- direction, then Mint will do the same thing. Um, the other major player uh, in the, the Internet space or in the program space um, is uh, Postgres, uh, as it's called, or PostgreSQL um, is its officially named. Um, it's, a, an open, it's also an open source object relational database system. It was originally called Postgres, and that's what most people still call it, created at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Um, and he went on to um, start to be a CTO of, of a big company. Um, it was started as a follow-up project to a, a project called Ingress, which is now owned by Community Computer Associates. Uh, so some people may have heard of Ingress. Um, it's uh, available under... So MySQL and MariaDB are both under the GPL. Uh, I believe is the license that they're both available under. Um, Postgres is under a, its own license, um, and what it says on their website is that the license gives you the freedom to use, modify, and distribute PostgreSQL in any form you like, open or closed source. Any modifications, enhancements, or changes you make are yours to do with as you please. So it sounds a lot more like the, I think it's the BSD license that's this way, where, um, you know, it's it's just open. You can, can do anything with it. Um, including create a closed source product out of it. Um, I'll come back in a minute to talk about comparing MySQL to PostgreSQL. Um, I know a lot less about PostgreSQL because it, uh, when I first got looking at um, 
databases from a programmer's point of view, um, it looked a lot more complicated. And that's the reputation that it has. MySQL is, is faster and easier to use. PostgreSQL is more feature-rich and uh, more stable is the kind of the rough comparison. So the last one I wanted to talk about, and I don't know if you were going to jump in and, or if you had already looked at this one, Scott, but I'm going to steal your thunder if you have, and that was uh, SQLite. Uh, because this is the one that I've actually, from a programmer's point of view, I've actually used more than, than either of the other two. And and that's because it's not really, well, the other two are client servers. In other words, there's a database server engine, and you run a separate client program that interacts with the server. Uh, SQLite is a self-contained sort of thing. So you don't have to configure it. You don't have to, um, there's no server to install. None of that stuff, but it's a transactional SQL database engine. Uh, now, the interesting thing about SQLite is that the code is actually in the public domain, which is really, uh, I guess, the ultimate in open source licenses. Uh, it, in other words, it's not a license. Yeah, you can use it for anything you want, commercial, private. There are no restrictions on there. Um, it it does, it, or it just exists in the public domain. Okay, I said that about six times. So it, it's an uh, embedded engine. So what that means is that it is, if you're a programmer, um, it exists as a part of your program. It's just embedded right in there. Or there's a DLL perhaps. But uh, you can create, and it, it's uh, all contained in a single file that you can just copy around. Um, and and drag kind of anywhere, and it's very, very easy to use from a programmer's point of view. Um, you can get at it from any of a dozen different languages. It's really, really easy uh, to use. I've used it in, in Python, and you, you can use it even when you don't really know or care whether this is a proper relational database. You just kind of stick it in there, and you say, okay, make me a table like this, and here's some data to stick in it, and save it, and then I'll come back and get it later. It's uh, it's very nice that way. Um, it exists on the the uh, Microsoft side of the fence as well, or and uh, you can also use it from C-sharp and Mono. Uh, so all those things exist. So comparison-wise, uh, I guess the for a long time MySQL was... Faster, less full-featured. Uh, PostgreSQL was more densely featured, but maybe um, a little more stable. Um, what I've been, what I've read recently, though, is that that's kind of old news, and that um, you know MySQL is has advanced in a lot in recent years, and has has is approaching or has has matched the the functionality of Postgres and Postgres is a lot faster as well. So um and they're different. You know, they're and there's uh, the other thing I'll say about these two is that there's a huge amount more complexity to either of these two than than I've even touched on. There's this whole issue of front ends and back ends and multiple layers and the way that the the uh um acid that the guaranteed transactional nature is implemented and all this fun stuff so uh, lots of detail there that we've just just very briefly touched on um, the last thing I wanted to say before I, I finally shut up uh, Scott can't believe that he hasn't been able to get a word in edgewise here um, but I wanted to say that um, databases you most likely have encountered them in some other program very few people that have that actually work with the database directly. Um, 
mostly you're going to see it in things like uh, forums, like if you've gone to a discussion forum anywhere that's running PHPBB. Uh, that's a, a forum system that's written in, in PHP, as you might imagine, that uses either MySQL or PostgreSQL as a, a back-end data store. Uh, Simple Machines uses MySQL. Uh, WordPress, I mentioned. The content managers like uh, Drupal and Joomla both store all their data in uh, MySQL or in PostgreSQL. Um, and it goes on and on and on. There's just, the number of these applications floating around the Internet particularly is, is just staggering. Uh, and so that's probably where you've run into it. Um, so Bridges uh, on the IRC chat uh, here asks uh, or made the comment, I hope that PHP MyAdmin will support MariaDB. Uh, absolute must for administering the DB, especially if you have multiple ones. And, and that really is true. And I've used uh, PHP MyAdmin on, uh, on Joomla sites and on uh, um, PHPBB sites to, to do a lot of different things. Uh, my, and, and I haven't tested this, but my guess is that because MariaDB is a direct plug-in, a direct drop-in replacement for MySQL, that um, PHP MyAdmin wouldn't even know that you'd made the change. Uh, in fact, the client program you run when you're going to interact with a MariaDB server is MySQL. That's the, the name of the client program. So that all the commands are identical. It's, it's almost exactly, and uh, the design is supposed to be exactly identical. So I would guess that it probably does work. So, Scott, you uh, have been waiting patiently. You had a, a look at, at perhaps maybe the uh, the more uh, rarefied, interesting, uh, dare I say, the seedier side of, of databases. Well, and actually, this is it's sort of the what we're seeing now. It's the latest trend in databases, and that's what you've probably heard of as NoSQL databases or not only SQL databases. And uh, NoSQL refers to a class of databases, uh, database management systems that are not based on the relational model that Rob spoke of. Um, they're not built on tables. They typically don't use SQL or structured query language for data manipulation. Um, they're usually set up as uh, key value stores, although some are document stores in a very similar fashion, and some are graph databases. So um, these are actually coming about now uh, because a lot of uh, open source companies are trying to solve problems of how to um, quickly uh, store and retrieve um, data. And a, a lot of the databases that we spoke of up to this point have a lot more overhead than these, uh, these NoSQL databases. So we'll talk a little bit about um, document store, document data store databases. A couple that you may have heard of are CouchDB and MongoDB. And, um, they're, they're probably the closest to the relational model. Um, CouchDB actually uses JSON, uh, uses a JSON da data structure and um, represents all the, all the fields are presented hierarchically. Um, so you, but there's no table joins or anything like that. If people are um, familiar with uh, uh, SQL, structured query language, you end up doing a lot of joins and such when you're, when you're manipulating data. Um, so um, inside these, these document stores, you'll see what are called collections. And um, these, these are akin to tables in a relational store. And then the documents themselves could be considered records, but they're, um, but they're different. Every record in a table has, has a sequence of fields, while a document's in a collection, um, they may have fields that are completely different. So um, 
it's really sort of an interesting way of going about doing things. Uh, again, we talked about the key value lookup. So you have a very simple pairing uh, of um, keys and values or documents and keys that can be, uh, again, can be stored and retrieved very quickly. So there's a couple other examples of NoSQL databases that you may or may not heard of, uh, have heard of. There's Cassandra, which um, is was actually open sourced by Facebook back in 2008. And there's a little pattern here that you're going to see. I'm going to mention a company and a product that they have actually developed. Um, Cassandra was is also used by by Twitter and Dig. Uh, and then you're going to see some. There's some other ones I'll mention here that were mentioned by these cloud companies that we're we're now you know a lot of us are leveraging. Amazon created uh, a, a NoSQL database called Dynamo. Um, Google created Big Table, and Twitter also uses one called FlockDB. And these can be used, they can run right alongside, um, you know, traditional uh, relational databases such as Oracle or, or MySQL or uh, even um, Microsoft SQL. So um, real quick, I was just going to mention that um, CouchDB that I talked about before uh, is one that was used. This was actually originally used in Ubuntu One, uh, their, you know, their Google Drive, their, you know, you guys are probably familiar with Ubuntu One, but it actually got discontinued because of the scalability um, that, but it's also it, it is still in use on the B, the BBC uses it for their iPlayer and for their homepage layout and for their film network. So um, it's interesting these things are coming about these NoSQL databases are coming about because these companies big data companies are trying to um, resolve uh, how they're going to deal with these massive amounts of data that need to be stored and retrieved very quickly and so they're. There's a there's a fair amount of duplication going on right now, duplication of effort in this space, but it's um, people feel it's going to start to shake out, and you'll start to see uh, less of these. A few of them will probably fall by the wayside, and some of the bigger players will will see some consolidation. I was reading an article where uh, it was a people had gone to a um, a NoSQL event in London, uh, probably within the last three or four months, and what came out of that was this idea that relational database, the, the traditional relational database model that we know is, is pretty mature, you know, as Rob talked about, it was developed back in the early 70s, I think you said, or maybe even the 60s, the, the idea of a relational database was, was first posited back then. So it's, it's a mature technology. We understand it. We've been dealing with it for years. And it's probably applicable in 90% of the cases when people are looking at how they're going to, what their database needs are and how they're going to address those. But um, for that other 10%, these, uh, these new uh, NoSQL databases have, um, have a role to play. So it's sort of an interesting thing, and, and it seems like something on the rise, uh, particularly in relation to, to um, cloud uh, services. So thought we'd just touch on them briefly. So, Rob, um, do you want to put a, put a wrap on, uh, do you have any concluding statements with regards to uh, our look at uh, open source databases? Well, um, the thing that I was sitting here thinking of is, as you were talking was, you know, how it, it, it's interesting to me that most people that use the Internet, if you ask them about databases, um, they you'd get a blank scadere. Or uh, we had actually somebody on the on the IRC uh, who joined and kind of listened for a little bit and then said, snore, I'm sorry, and left. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not like it's a really um, heart thumping sort of topic that people get excited on about, but yet 
if you look at everything, virtually everything you do on the web is backed up in some place or other by a database, and that that activity has really driven these companies to develop brand new ways of storing and managing data. And and I had no idea that, um, you know, all these non-SQL databases, that's where they came from, was that, that they were almost a product of, of uh, necessity as the web started to expand. So yeah. it, it's like the, it's like concrete or something. It's what is underlying the whole of our Internet experience. And most of us just kind of don't know anything about it altogether. So, yeah. uh, but, so I would encourage people to, to go look at things. The easiest, kind of most approachable thing you can do is to go fiddle with, um, op- with LibreOffice Base. And just think about the way that you might use that to make a Christmas list or to do things like that. That's probably the best introduction to the notion of databases. Yeah. Um, and then if you're going to write programs, uh, by all means, check out uh, SQLite or, uh, or one of the more complex ones. Uh, it, um, it's, it's something to learn. Just to sort of bookend our conversation so far in this episode – I've I've had uh, the the pleasure of going to career day at the high school a couple of times and representing my company in our IT department. I've actually done it at both high schools in town here. And you know, you sit down with these kids and they they have no idea what they want to do, but they start asking you questions, you know, or they get stuck at your table for whatever reason. And I always <laughs> tell them that, you know, when people ask me about IT and what fields they should look at, I always say networking and databases. Because yep. no matter what changes in the next 20 years, there's going to be networking and there's going to be databases. We're going to want to move the data and we're going to want to store the data. And the technologies may change in those areas, but those there will be major networking fields and there will be major database fields that people can gain employment in. Yep. So if you want work, study databases. Indeed. Well, I think that's going to wrap it for databases i guess i I need to just go and and save these tables so that i don't lose them for later on and in the meantime we're going to move on and see what sort of comments have popped up over the the last little while so our first comment comes from I think it's Leven. I might be pronouncing their name incorrectly, but they wrote in and said, thanks for the episode. I will try them all out. And this is talking about our last episode on screencasting and screen recorders. Uh, Time to flood YouTube with all my poorly recorded videos. At the bottom of my videos, I will put the line powered by and then a nice and large logo of Mintcast so people will know where to direct their complaints. Your podcast is one of the few I keep refreshing my podcast RSS feeds for. Yeah, just what we need is more more complaints and more uh, yeah feedback. Yeah, well, uh, that's okay. We can take it. We can take it. Bring it on. Bring it on. Yeah. So next one is from uh, I O'Connor. Thanks for the episode on screen recording. For some re- reason, I've never attempted it. Uh, so when I saw the episode, I was intrigued. I used Mint 14 XFCE and tried FFmpeg, but the command says to use AVCONV. So I looked up AVCONV to find in the documentation that I should compile everything to get the very latest. I made some nice scripts with their instructions, but in the end, they did not work. 
Uh, so I use Synaptic and the AVCUNV FFmpeg. It installs, works fine as far as I can tell. I run dual monitors, and the larger of the two I set down to HD720, and then use this command to capture the microphone and everything that appears on the larger monitor. And there's a great long command in there um, that I'm, I'm going to hurt myself if I try and read it. Uh, but it's a big FFmpeg command. Hmm. We'll put that. Is that off the web? Yeah, that's off the web. Uh, check out the uh, comments on the website and to pick up that uh, that big long command. You know, it's interesting as I look. You know, you were struggling with it a little bit there, whether to read it or not. And as I'm looking at it, having done the research on FFmpeg, it's, yeah. it's you can you know it's it's easy because it tells you x11 grab which we talked about last last week grab your x11 then the frame rate's 25 frames then the resolution is 720 hd 720 and then the eye is to where he wants to grab it from which is zero with the monitor we talked about that last week zero, he zero. says then he says grab um the alsa hardware zero zero so whatever oh, yeah, is on okay. zero zero yeah. for his alsa hardware and i'm not sure what the strict does but then he just wants to kick it to this experimental out um temp this, yeah so it's MP4. interesting how you, okay. yeah, you can actually all, read it yeah yeah it's, i mean there's a lot more to ffmpeg than even this command so it gets crazy yeah copycat i think avconv i think that's right it's an abbreviation for audio video converter yeah, and so be a front end to FFmpeg. Is that well? That no, is? when you go and you look at FFmpeg, they start. You'll get stuff that it's saying it's deprecated uh, in um, in Ubuntu, and you should be using AVCon. I don't know what that's all about because FFmpeg is, you know, it's still awesome. So I don't know if if Ubuntu is planning hmm. on moving it out or what's going on there. But anyway, or is it this? Is it in fact the same thing? They renamed it, or no? No, it's a different no, thing. It's different Something thing. different. Okay, yeah. well, yep. it goes to show what I know. Yeah, so we got an email from Aubrey S. Marshall who wrote in and said, Guys, love the show. I thought I would introduce you to one more desktop recording presentation and tutorial production tool. And uh, provides a link to the product called Wink. uh, Really? Did you try that? Just click the latest version to get the Linux download. And the, you know, so Wink is actually... I did try it. Um, I was going to include it in last week's show, but I couldn't get it to work on my VM, and I didn't try it on my home machine. The thing that is interesting about Wink is what Wink does is takes a screenshot. And so you specify how often you want it to take a screenshot, and then it puts them together. So sort of like a an electronic flip book. Um, when you draw the guy throwing the ball or whatever in a flip book, and then, or the walking man, you know, and you flip all the pages. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is Wink is an electronic version of that, so it's it's an interesting concept. Uh, but I couldn't, like I say, I couldn't get it to work, so I didn't end up using it. Aubrey, if you can write back in and tell us, um, you know, give us an example, or if you have anything up on YouTube that was done with with Wink, send us a link. I'd love to take a look at that and see how it came out and what it looks like. I would imagine, nice. you know, when you think about, you know, something like we just read that FFmpeg command, which had 25 frames per second. That's just 25 right. pictures per second, yep. you know, which yep. is essentially the same thing. Um, so, uh, but it, it was well, an interesting standard concept. movie is 24, right? Yep, something like that. Yeah, yeah 24. 24 is a standard Well, PAL's got a frame rate, and then NTSC's got a different frame rate, so. Yeah, but if you go to, like, a movie theater, like a film, yeah. that's 24 frames a second. I think it's 24 frames, yeah. yeah. So, so anyways, Aubrey, if you have a, a link uh, to something you've created that's up on YouTube, send it in. 
Yeah, that the link that is shown in the email doesn't work. That's where the problem I had. Oh, okay. It's, I did. It's I did debug not debug mode. Not debug mode. De not debug not mode, mode. Mode mode. Yeah. So mode if you guys try the yeah. yeah, if you try the link that is out on the comments, cut one of the modes out of the debug right, mode yeah. mode. I think part. that was actually an email that came in. So. Oh, okay. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Yep. You're right. So I'll post that up in the in the show notes then. Okay. So the last one I wanted to, to throw out there was one that came in today from uh, James Eaton who said, Rob, I was playing around with my CronTab and found that this was an excellent guide to using CronTab. Maybe you guys could use this as a basis for an episode of the podcast. And so he, he and the reason I mentioned it is because he put a link in here to a site called unixgeeks.org. Uh, and there, the CronTab entry in there is, is fascinating, but uh, I have to say that um, James, you owe me about three hours because I found this um, earlier today and spent a lot, well, not three hours, I guess, but I spent a bunch of time um, digging through that uh, unixgeeks.org site. It was, it's a fascinating site. It's really yes, it a, is. a very cool place to go. So yep, uh, great if, you site. Get, uh, if you're going to look for stuff on, and it's not, it's Unix and Unix-like operating systems. So there's a bunch of stuff on there that's of, of good use for uh, uh, for us Linux sites too. So, so that about uh, kills the uh, the feedback part of it. Um, kills the feedback. We I did yeah. place a. I actually did this backwards. I started with the podcast announcements, and then as I was working through them. I decided that I was going to base the website of the podcast on the announcement. So we'll we'll start with the announcements, and then it'll make sense as to why the website yeah, is okay. what it is. Cool. So you guys probably recall we've been announcing the Northeast Northeast Linux Fest for the last few weeks. But I, I did want to get in there that um, Scale, the Southern California Linux uh, Expo, I think is what that is, uh, is right. actually coming up very soon. It's coming up on February 22nd through the 24th. And um, if you guys haven't heard, Rothgar, who is a former host of the show, yeah. uh, is is going to be there along with a bunch of other people. Scale always is a big event and always attracts Huge, yeah. um, attracts a great number of people. Um, Kyle Rankin, geez, there's some other people. Matthew Garrett is going to be there. Uh, we talk with about him right. a lot of UEFI fame and uh, right. uh, Red Hat fame and. Um, a number of others. So that's coming up in just uh, 11 days from now as we re we record this. So if you have an opportunity, if you're somewhere in the Southern California area, um, you may want to take that in. Uh, again, um, Northeast Linux Fest, as we were talking about, is March 16th and 17th in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Then we've got um, Linux Fest Northwest. The 2013 edition is going to be in April, the April 27th and 28th in Bellingham. Are you going to and try and head up to that again? Or? I don't think I'm going to make it this year. We've got too much going on and uh, probably not going to make it this year. So That was uh, a good time last year, though. I remember oh, I had a great time. it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, it was a great time, and I enjoyed that. Got to spend some time with the um, with the Linux Action Show guys. And, uh, right. Yeah, definitely enjoyed myself up there, So, um, but probably will not make it this year. And then we have um, – uh, Texas Linux Fest is actually coming up. Coming the end up of May. That's right. The end of May. And where is that? Yeah. Is that in Austin or where it's, is that? Uh, I believe it's going to be in Austin again. Yeah, they had moved it to San Antonio, I think, last year. But I think they're back in Austin again this year. I'm planning to go over for that. Awesome. Uh, it's a two-day deal, May 31st, June 1st. Yeah. So Looking as we were, forward to it. 
as I was rattling through those events, I was like, you know, there's got to be a place where you, where the average listener can go and look up and see what events are coming. And these are all specific to the U.S. And I know we have a lot of listeners um, who who tune into the podcast from overseas, and, and I didn't want to leave you guys out either. So we're going to have a link in the notes to uh, Linux Journal. They have an events uh, page up on their website. Linux Journal is great. Uh, magazine are they the one that's only online now Rob? Yep, they've, yep. they've switched from and actually i signed up for my first subscription the last texas linux fest i was at and i've renewed it since and i'm, I'm reading it actually on the uh, touchpad and so they've gone i guess i got maybe half a dozen or so episodes um, in paper form and then they decided to go uh, digital only and at first I thought, nah, I don't know about that. I'm not going to renew. And but then I, you know, my subscription was long enough that I kind of got used to the used to the digital version, and it came up for renewal. And I'm happily renewed for uh, another couple of years. I don't know how many episodes I renewed for, but uh, it was well worth it. It's I I really can't say enough good about it. I really like it. So when you're up there looking at the events calendar, uh, be sure to uh, check out Sign up. the possibility yeah. of signing up. And so if you go up and look, there's other things that are coming up later in the year. Um, the only one I, I could, didn't see on there was Ohio Linux Fest, which is out in September at some point. So, uh, yeah. But I did see a bunch of other ones. They have a bunch of different stuff, both in the States and overseas. So if you have the opportunity to take in one of these events, do so. They are It's a great place to meet up with kindred spirits and uh, Linux folks and kind of gets you jazz to to go out and do open source do open source indeed, do open indeed, source yeah so that's it for the for the website and the announcements and the announcements in one swell foop just like that yeah that's just amazing. like that well um my database is empty so i'm thinking we're running out of stuff to talk about now we're not running out of stuff to talk about i think i said that one other time and i was wrong but we're running out of time to talk about it in so yes. I think that's going to about do it for this episode of the Mintcast. So join us, uh, join us on Monday nights. We're we're starting to get a pretty good listing of folks in the uh, in the chat. We've got uh, Arold and Bill M I, of course. Welcome back. Uh, Bottom Bridges is here, I believe, from the UK. So you're up late uh, as we're recording this. Copycat, of course, is a regular. David's in there. Devnall. Uh, K5Tux looks like he's not AFK. He's often in here in AFK, uh, but looks like we have the real thing here uh, as we're recording. Mock Turtle appears to be away. He's often here. Rats is there. Haven't uh, seen too much uh, banter from the rats uh, tonight. And uh, I see Harrison hiding out in there as well. So got a good group uh, Monday nights, 7 Central, 8 Eastern, 6 Mountain, and if I say any more than that, I'm going to get confused. So love Me, to have you. 12 UTC or 0 UTC, whatever it is. 0 UTC, whatever floats your, your boat. Yep. Yep. Um, and so we'll see you next week, I guess. Yep. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Midcast. The show notes for this episode are at www.midcast.org. You can send us email at midcast at midcast.org or leave voicemail at plus one eight three two five one four two two seven eight. That's eight three two five one four cast 
You can find more information on Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco and Oscar for the podcast music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. <laughs>